Welcome to FEPS Talks, the podcast series of the Foundation for European Progressive Studies. Find out more about us on feps-europe.eu. Hello, this is FEPS Talks, uh, the podcast series of the Foundation for European Progressive Studies in Brussels. My name is Laszlo Andor. I'm the Secretary General of uh, FEPS, and I have the pleasure today to welcome Mario Holzner, who is the Executive Director of the Vienna Institute for International Economic Studies. And um, apart from running the Institute, he also teaches at Vienna University, precisely lecturing on applied econometrics. Mario, thanks very much for joining us. And what gives us an opportunity today to meet is a study your institute recently launched about the need for a new growth model in East Central Europe, which I think is particularly interesting, although a lot of people speak about a need for a new growth model in general when it comes to a transition to a green economy or absorbing uh, digitalization. But I believe there's a lot more behind this title when we zoom on um, the East Central European region, the Visegrad countries, and a few others, because I think it has been noted that since the great financial crisis, this region did not regain the very impressive growth rates of the pre-crisis decade. But I suppose this study is not only about quantities, but also the qualitative aspects of economic growth in this region. Can you explain the main points? of uh, this study and what kind of growth model you would like to see. Thank you very much for the invitation. You're right, the growth rates were not so impressive since uh, the outbreak of the global financial crisis. So this is one story because there is a rule of thumb. Basically, the East European countries would grow double the growth rate of the West European countries. So if the growth rate in the West is like only 1%, then you would also have only 2% growth in the East and the growth differential would be one percentage point. So if the growth in the West would be 2%, then the growth differential would be two percentage points and that obviously would uh, improve convergence and the time it takes for these countries to converge to West European economic levels. The other story is really the different challenges that the region faces. The region faces, obviously, many of the challenges that also Western Europe faces, but there are a few very specific issues. One is a certain form of a demographic decline of aging, very much aging society because of basically decades of outward migration. And that was particularly young families. And this is something that we'll see now in the coming decades. We already saw it basically before the recent outbreak of the COVID crisis that parts of the region basically had full employment, one could say. Czech Republic was unemployment rate below 2%. Another issue which we also touch upon in in this study is uh, on functional specialization. People were looking at industry shares of different types of manufacturing industry and so on. There, Eastern Europe looks very similar by now to Western Europe. Mm. But if you dig a little bit deeper and we have tried to, a colleague of mine at WIW, uh, Roman Stellinger, has been looking at data that would tell us a little bit more about the functional specialization. So what are these people really doing there? And there you have the problem in a way that Eastern Europe is really focusing on the production proper. While if we think about the value chain as a smile curve, then at the beginning and at the end, this is where really the the big money can be made. So R&D functions, headquarter functions at the beginning, and then 
at the end, it would be, for instance, sales services and, and uh, this type of things. So there is a, a threat that, for instance, via the increase in, in robotization, digitization, also the changes in the car manufacturing industry that are, are looming away from the combustion engine to uh, e-mobility. And knowing that uh, Central Eastern Europe is very much specialized in this car uh, industry, so uh, this uh, specific focus on production proper is perceived more and more as a problem. And, and here we have a set of suggestions how to deal with this, how to establish a new growth model. I think at the, f uh, the focus is human capital development, move into the direction of more innovative uh, activities and many other things, including also issues like improved social systems, how to get back some of the young families who went to the West or attract maybe uh, other young people who would be those who actually move on with the innovative process. And their issues like social housing would be part of the story. Let's just think about some interesting concepts like in Singapore or so on, where mm -hmm. there is public support for, for social housing, but also a number of other issues. Do you agree with those who describe this as a middle-income track and want to reinterpret what competitiveness means for these countries? Because... With the middle-income trap, there is a specific interpretation of uh, competitiveness associated, which is focusing on some of the main cost elements, especially, especially low taxation, wage moderation, which probably leads to a dead end. If, if, if you'd like to see more dynamic economic development based on value-added and innovation in the long run. I think uh, that there is a general trend that this uh, emphasis of competitiveness is seen less and less as the, the true path to, well, higher income. So we have made a number of suggestions which also include more cooperation, uh, including also macroeconomics. Mm. I think the Eastern members of the European Union should very much try to influence the future architecture of the Union and basically use its voice to contribute to making permanent the pandemic-driven temporary changes in the whole setup, uh, macroeconomic policy setup of the Union, for instance. Uh, this would be an, another suggestion. You mentioned convergence. And um, we have had many debates about this. Uh, some actually question whether convergence is really important in the European Union as an integrated economic system. What, what is your uh, take on this regarding economic, but also social convergence? I think both is uh, extremely important. Uh, look, we don't have to look at East versus West, but look at North versus South. I think mm. it's evident that neglecting convergence leads sooner or later to serious political uh, problems. And uh, we are maybe only at the beginning of uh, understanding uh, what kind of effects this really can have. And uh, hence, uh, there are good reasons why part of the union uh, union's budget is invested in various funds for supporting convergence. And probably not enough uh, was done in the past. And, and here, I think we have to step up quite a bit. Does this mean that you would uh, like to see a reform or a serious reconsideration of what the EU means by cohesion policy and how it is funded? Absolutely. Yeah. I think I think cohesion policy needs to be reformed. It is quite a complex matter, so there are no easy solutions, that is clear. But I think it must become easier 
for peripheral regions to apply for funds. It is very difficult for them. I think the whole process needs to be streamlined. Barriers, entry barriers have to be reduced. And I think also to a certain extent, higher risks of the funding have to be taken. If you want really to make a difference, you have to accept that some of your investments will fail, but some actually might be really a game changer for parts uh, of the mm -hmm. region. So I don't know, for instance, maybe some innovation incubators could be installed uh, in some parts uh, of the Central and Eastern European uh, EU member states, uh, but they would need to be integrated, have to be, should be integrated with the national governments, with local universities, businesses, trade unions, the whole civil society part as well. Uh, so this would be an example of one could potentially do. I think it's a very good example because we often speak about the empowerment of uh, the local actors regarding uh, not only the planning, but also the access to these EU funds. And if appropriate, of course, in uh, combining uh, the, the transfers coming from the EU budget and also various other types of finance uh, from the EIB group, which would uh, allow for more risk-taking and financing uh, innovation, as you also pointed this out. Uh, so the question of finance and cohesion policy indeed is a key factor. On the other hand, some would argue that what blocks a transition to a new growth model is not so much the limitations of the available EU tools, but the model which is based on transnational banks, transnational manufacturing companies dominating a lot of sectors and their subsidiaries uh, being the dominant players in these economies and Somehow, you know, their preference towards low taxation and, um, you know, weaker industrial relations is maybe not controls, but influences the agenda very, very strongly. What would you say to that? Well, it is true in a way, but on the other hand, I mean, that was really the model of, uh, it was in a way that was quite a successful model up till now. And it generated a lot of uh, high productivity jobs in the region. These multinationals were coming not only, and maybe even less so for, I think, for the taxation issues, but also particularly for lower wages in the very vicinity. So typically German manufacturing companies would establish uh, subsidiaries in basically a distance of a, of a day drive by car. And that probably made a lot of sense for them. But it is true, this, this to a certain extent, yeah, there is a ceiling to this. But then again, well, it is not new that this region has difficulties to find proper institutions of development. Let's put it that way. Uh, if we look back into economic history, there's a guy called Gershwin and with his series about economic development. This was already a problem. He saw that in the West you have, I don't know, in, in, in Britain you have merchant capitalists who would invest in then uh, moving on to the East in France and in Germany would uh, have established uh, the institution of, of universal banking that would invest. And the farther East you go, the more, the less you have available these former types of institutions the more the state comes in as a player. And this, in a way, culminated already in Tsarist Russia, uh, with the state being very dominant, and obviously later on also in Soviet times, but also in, in large parts of Central and Eastern Europe. So we are, in a way, past that state, massive state uh, intervention. And uh, so to speak, a new type of institution of uh, multinational manufacturers were having this role. But as you also mentioned, probably this came to an end now. And uh, there would be, it would be important to obviously find local sources also who 
uh, accumulate capital, knowledge, entrepreneurship. There are some islands of this happening, in, let's say, in the IT industry, even I would say in, in, in probably modern e-mobility issues, if you look at Croatia, for instance. Mm. But it's an initiative of a single person like this, Mate Rimac Automobili firm, who is technological leader in design of e-cars. Uh, and establishing a, a campus close to Zagreb. But these are really only certain islands of, of modernity, if you wish. Mm. Yeah, there is a, a major problem of really finding new agents of improvement uh, and uh, investment convergence uh, developers, so to speak. Yes, well, thanks for mentioning Alexander Gershenkon, who obviously wrote a lot of important things um, which should be recommended for uh, the contemporary students. Uh, but you started to shift um, the focus, geographically speaking, uh, towards the southeast. And uh, this would be my next question indeed, because one can look at the question of the Western Balkans in two ways. One is that, you know, we already learned a lot about um, EU enlargement and uh, the ups and downs. Uh, so we are now much smarter to organize the accession of uh, the Western Balkans to the European Union and avoid past uh, mistakes. But um, there are surely others who would say that, look, we already saw so many failures in East Central Europe and dead ends. And now also, you know, the top of the economic controversy is also the political ones with the rule of law. So perhaps uh, one would need to be much more cautious regarding further enlargement of uh, the European Union. Which uh, direction would you advocate in this case? Would you be in favour of uh, further enlargement of the European Union and integration of the Western Balkans? Uh, absolutely, because, I mean, uh, all these concerns are true. I mean, there are... There are problems. It's not like <laughs> this is uh, an easy task and then including issues of rule of law and so on. But what is the alternative? Do we really want to have in our vicinity um, problematic cases uh, of failed states, maybe, the, where third parties uh, use these as a base for their activities? So I think that that is not really a better option. So in addition, there is, so to speak, if this is... <laughs> Not nice, but one could say that the Western Balkans are something like an economic black hole. And uh, it also poses a problem of economic development of neighboring regions that are already members of the Union. I'm mm. thinking about uh, large parts of Croatia bordering to Bosnia and Herzegovina, clearly also Greece and Bulgaria, who are like far away from the centers of economic activity of the Union. Mm. Partly because there is this block of countries that are underdeveloped compared to the rest uh, of Europe that are in a way hindering uh, the process of convergence also particularly in the southeast of Europe. So I think it is not only about being nice to these countries, but it's also about improving our own members' possibilities and options for economic development. Well, indeed, um, especially if you take into account that with the exception of Albania, what is left as uh, Western Balkans used to be one country. Why should it be impossible? to integrate this uh, region in a way, reintegrate, but perhaps various agents, the European Union itself, but others like the EBRD would need to do things differently or more deeply or more actively. What do you think could be done differently in order to speed up this process? I think we should, uh, as a union, be more generous in terms of investment grants uh, because uh, the large part of support to these 
uh, Western Balkan economies in terms of uh, support, for instance, for connectivity infrastructure in transport, mm-hmm. energy, digital people to people, you call it, is uh, in loans. Uh, and I mean, in that sense, the difference to Chinese uh, construction loans is not that huge. I mean, it will also in- increase uh, the indebtedness of these countries and so on. So I think one uh, way uh, to go is to be more generous uh, with regard to investment grants. We have to bear in mind that the the cumulated uh, GDP of the Western Balkans is about half of the GDP of Greece. So, I mean, we are speaking really about the quantité negligible. It's a very small area in both also population as well as in economic size. So a little bit more can make a huge difference there. And uh, I think doesn't hurt uh, EU members really. And another issue I would uh, mention would be basically grant them something like a differentiated partial accession particularly to the single market, without political rights of um, influencing things, but uh, becoming really as a step closer to becoming a full member, becoming a partial member at least, particularly in those areas where it is really important for the economy to develop, and that is basically being included in the single market. I think such ideas could be perhaps discussed in the context of this conference on the future of the European Union, which was just uh, recently launched. And um, until now, I think we have seen a lot of discussions about how decisions should be made at the level of the European Union, you know, how to change the rights of the parliament or the selection of the commissioners or other issues, but probably not enough about the geographic borders of the European Union and what geographic area the European Union should cover in uh, the future. Would you like to see more about East Central Europe or the Balkans, Southeast Europe, um, in this conference in the future of Europe? I think particularly the Western Balkans should be included uh, much more in this process, if nothing else, than to make them, uh, and particularly to, to, to strengthen the pro-EU forces in the region and to make them feel to be part of Europe, which they are and which they have been granted in principle in Saloniki in 2003, the right to join one day the European Union. And uh, I think uh, this is uh, really an important issue. And it was, I think, a little bit neglected in the whole design of the uh, Future of Europe conference. Because I think in the end, what we don't want to have is apart from economic black hole in the Western Mm Balkans, also a political black hole. Exactly. If I can um, come up with the last question. We started from a study of your institute about the new growth model. And I would like to ask a question about another uh, paper which um, you co-authored in the context of the next generation EU. Because now, you know, we simultaneously discuss the long-term future of the European Union, but also the short-term recovery. And you have been advocating a specific use of the new EU investment funds uh, in next generation EU for developing massively, very ambitiously, transnational transport networks. Would you like to explain uh, the idea for our listeners? Yeah, indeed. Uh, This was summer, last summer, just before uh, the decisions were made. We were uh, arguing together in a paper together with our partner institutes, the uh, IMK in Düsseldorf and the OFC in Paris, for quite a bold investment uh, plan uh, in three areas, uh, health for for good reasons, in energy, 
green energy issues also for very good reasons. And another area was transport infrastructure. And here, basically, uh, it was an argument for establishing a high-speed railway network in Europe. Mm -hmm. Again, this connects also to the Green Deal issues, but it is, I think, a bit more than just that. It is really an issue of connecting Europe, offering people the possibility to, for instance, go from uh, Berlin to Paris in four hours or even less. This would, I think, be apart from the economic effects, which would be positive, I think. We had some calculations for that. It would be also on uh, in cultural terms, in, in terms of political unity, and particularly in terms of creating a new narrative for Europe. I think uh, quite, a, quite a project. It would be a big mission, so to speak, in, in, in terms of uh, Mazzucato's uh, mission economy uh, idea. Uh, and it probably creates maybe a new narrative. Uh, it would be a joint action connecting, for instance, uh, most of the capital cities in, in the European Union with high-speed trains, because I have the feeling that the old narrative, overcoming the, the, the horrors of the Second World War, rebuilding Europe after the Second World War, this is in a way vanishing. Many people can't remember that uh, horrible period anymore. And uh, hence, we are, we are lacking some, some big joint action. And I think better than shoot a man on, on Mars would be to basically do something uh, about our own economy, about how we are connected and if it is possible to do this with a, a green technology, which is not really new. We're able to build fast trains since the 70s, but we really should do it also not only on a national level, but try to build this high-speed train network across borders. And yeah, China has by now uh, invested uh, massively into this and is uh, having about 80% of the world's high-speed rail network. Uh, I think it is not about the question uh, how to do this, but really whether there is a political will uh, to do it. And I think we should go that uh, road, definitely. Thank you so much. Um, I think um, your uh, thoughts and uh, words um, are extremely convincing about the role of investment, uh, because this is um, the policies through which a community practically decides on its future. And now that um, the European Union indeed uh, practically had no choice but create a new investment framework with next generation EU, um, a lot of imp important decisions uh, will have to be made. And these transnational aspects, which also uh, can help to reshape the, the, the nature of economic growth and development in East and West, um, represent um, great um, opportunities. Uh, Maria Holzner, uh, thank you so much for being with us today and um, explaining what is behind these uh, critical studies. Um, your institute in Vienna has been producing um, in the recent period. I think uh, you are at a very interesting vantage point uh, from which uh, uh, you have a perspective on uh, the entire European integration, but especially on the countries which recently joined the European Union and which are still awaiting uh, the, the further integration, uh, which um, I agree should be uh, completed um, in the foreseeable future. And um, I think it was also important to mention that this uh, new conference on the future of Europe gives an opportunity to discuss all this uh, 
again and develop some kind of concrete uh, plan. Uh, thank you so much uh, for um, uh, this discussion today and I thank our listeners uh, for their attention. Thank you for your attention. If you found our conversation interesting, do not hesitate to share it on social media with the hashtag FEPSTalks. More is yet to come. Stay tuned.